This is Heart of the Enneagram with Sandra Smith and Chris Copeland. Join us as we explore the depth and complexity of the Enneagram system. very strong protective instinct uh, for my people and I will I will fight for them and I will and it's again it's that decisive decisiveness that you know you don't attack my people when they're doing what they're supposed to do. Chris it's always good to be with you as we continue this series on leadership. In season six, we're focusing on the nine Enneagram types as leaders. And as many of you may know, use of this Enneagram system in leadership trainings is on the rise globally. And these episodes will consider best practices for using the Enneagram in leadership. And so to help us understand more about the Enneagram leadership, we're grateful to have our guest today, Julie Mayfield, who was elected to the North Carolina Senate in 2020, representing District 49. And before that, Julie spent five years on the Asheville, North Carolina City Council, where she led the council's work on transportation, the environment, and clean energy. She's also the co-director of Mountain True, a regional environmental advocacy organization. Before moving to Asheville and Mountain True in 2008, Julie was the vice president and general counsel for the Georgia Conservancy, where she worked on a variety of environmental policy issues. And prior to that, she directed the Turner Environmental Law Clinic at Emory University School of Law and practiced environmental law at Kilpatrick Stockton. Julie's a graduate of Leadership Asheville, Leadership Atlanta, and the Institute for Georgia Environmental Leadership. She is a graduate of Davidson College here in North Carolina and also Emory University School of Law, which is where Julie and I first met um, in 1993. I'm going to say when it was, Julie. Uh, so <laughs> uh, welcome, Julie. We're glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's a real honor. As we continue, let's engage a brief presence practice. So let's just take a couple deep breaths as we find our feet on the floor and notice where our body meets the chair as we open our minds, hearts, and ground in our bodies. So Julie, when you were first learning the Enneagram system, what were the first clues that you led with type eight? What told you that? Well, um, this is actually a kind of a funny story. So Chris was actually the first clue that I might be an eight. There was a, <clears throat> a gathering at his house. I think it was for your uh, for a birthday, we'll just say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a recent birthday, Julie. <laughs> this is a recent you birthday. You can say it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> this was your 50th yes, birthday. Yes. And, uh, and everybody in the room clearly knew their Enneagram type, and I was the only one who didn't. And uh, so you offered that I, in your experience with me, that you thought I was probably an eight. Uh, because I had a very strong sense of justice is what you is what you said. So that was my first clue. And then Sandra, when I met you, maybe a year and a half later, um, when you came and did a, uh, an Enneagram retreat for Mountain True, you had us, um, I guess you this is what you do with all groups that you do, you, um, you send us the descriptions of the different types, and ask us to choose three that we think might work. Uh, and only then do we sort of learn what those what those types are. 
And it, Sandra, I know I've told you this story. So it just so happens that in that description of the types, the eight is the very first description that you read. You don't know that that's what it is, but that was, and I read the first two sentences and I said, well, these are horrible people. Clearly I'm not one of these. <laughs> <laughs> went on to the next one and I read all the rest and you know there were a couple that seemed resonant um, and I never even I never went back to the first uh, and then of course I looked at the key and I I uh, saw that the very first one was the eight and I was horrified and I went back and read it and I still thought these are terrible people Chris had to have been wrong I couldn't possibly be this person <laughs> um, and so then I took the next step, which was, um, which was to listen to your podcast, your uh, season one of your podcast, where you do the interviews with the different types. You know, I desperately wanted to be a seven. I, I have a lot of, I work with a lot of sevens and that seemed really fun and creative and interesting. And I really desperately wanted to be a seven. And then I also thought, well, I'm probably then maybe a three. Well, I listened to the three, I was not a three. I listened to the seven, I was not a seven. And then I listened to the eight and, um, Within, the, within literally the first 30 seconds of the interview, I realized, yeah, this is what I am. And then later on, as I, again, I think I've said to Sandra, um, at some point in that podcast, in the conversation you were having, um, I started weeping and I just realized mm. this, is, this is it. This is, I mean, it just, it hit such an emotional chord and then also the intellectual cord that, um, yeah, for good or ill, this is who I am. <laughs> but I embrace being an eight now. <laughs> Can I ask what, do you remember what touched you in particular as you heard that, Julie? I do. It was the, the section or the, the portion of the conversation around um, loyalty and how important it is for eights to feel like people have their back. And I had just been through a very challenging situation at city council and a very difficult decision that I had made that um, made a lot of people very angry. And, uh, and even though there were many people who agreed with me, no one was sort of coming to my defense. And um, that was, I don't know that I realized how painful that was, um, but that's, but it was. I, I wanna just make a note here as we move forward, that all Enneagram types are created equal, none are better or worse than any other. And for each of us, when we find our type, it can feel like a punch in the gut, as many people say. Um, so we get to see ourselves in motel lighting, so to speak. <laughs> the good, the beautiful, the horrible, yes. So Julie, um, as you think about yourself as a leader, and I've known you a long time, and you've been a leader the whole time, and before that. Um, and, and I know, you know, you coming to understand yourself as an eight is more recent, but but as you look back, and, and you can even think more recently, but what do you think are some of the strengths that uh, you bring to leadership as a type eight? Where do you, what kind of, where does that flourish for you? The, the first place I would say is um, <laughs> classic classic eight is decisiveness. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're often wrong, but we're never in doubt. So, you know, I can make, I can make decisions quickly uh, in particularly in um, sort of crisis situations or situations where you just don't have enough time. You don't have very much time. And uh, uh, so I think, I think that's a, that's a place where I, I have done really well. Um, also, 
you know, bringing people with me in those decisions and, you know, people um, often need and want, you know, decisive leadership. And so I can, I can do that. I can give people um, a, a person and a, uh, a place to, to put their faith um, that, uh, that things will move forward, that things will be okay, that, um, that things will, will work out. Um, so that, that I think is, is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, the, I think the social subtype helps a lot in um, wanting to bring people into the decision-making. You know, I've, I've never been, my view is that I've never been an autocratic decision-maker. Um, you know, I've, I have always tried to push decision-making down to, um, to other levels of the organization that I work in and other people. I try to empower other people in the organization to make their decisions and um, uh, where they're able to do that. Uh, and, uh, and when it's sort of an organization-wide decision, you know, bringing, bringing the group together to make that collective decision. So for instance, you know, when we're revising personnel policies, um, when we're creating new policies about things, um, when we're deciding what health insurance to get as an organization, those are decisions we make as a team. Um, you know, that's not me sitting in an office or me. I'm, I should say I'm a co-director at, at this organization, Mountain True. Uh, so that's not just my co-director and me sitting in an office saying, you know, well, this is what we're going to do. We know that this is the best for the organization, the best for people. We involve people in that conversation instead. And, and again, I think part of what enables me to do that is, um, the confidence, the self-confidence that comes from being an eight. I don't have to, I'm not worried about being viewed as weak or being viewed as um, insecure because I'm inviting other people to participate. I can make these decisions. I'm perfectly capable of making these decisions. Um, and more often than not, the group makes the decision that I would have made had I made it on my own. But it's critically important from a leadership standpoint to engage other people in decision making and uh, give them a chance to get, to make the decision everybody's instead of just one person's. And you know your sense of fairness really comes into play as you create personnel policies. You know we often don't think of fairness in terms of that but it really plays out in the minutiae. Right, right and I, I do think yeah, the, the fairness and, and, and drive for, for justice sort of even within the organization is, um, it's, it's, really, it's really important. The, the other place I think that this comes up is, and this has not happened very often, but it has happened a couple of times. You know, Mountain True is an advocacy organization. And so sometimes we make people mad. And sometimes those people lash back out at individual staff members. And when that has happened, um, the, the mama bear in me comes out, you know, I, you both know, I don't have children, uh, but I have a very strong protective instinct, uh, for my people and I will, I will fight for them and I will, and it's, again, it's that decisive, decisiveness that, you know, you don't attack my people when they're doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and that, again, I, I hope, you know, gives my, my team a sense of um, 
you know, of the loyalty that I have for them, which is, again, a, a characteristic of, of type A. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, Julie, like, like knowing, you named this earlier about for yourself, but knowing that my boss has my back and is going is to protect me if somebody, like that engenders in me a sense of like, I, I can trust this place, I can rest here, I know that I'm okay here. So what an amazing gift that you offer to those who, who you work with and who work for you. Do folks that you lead find that you communicate pretty clearly? Uh, I think so, yes. That, that's the feedback that I've gotten. I certainly, well, I'm not known as being indirect. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> when we get into, I think your next question, which will be about some of the challenges, um, you know, as we know, it's uh, type, people who leave with type eight can be um, often uh, a little too direct and a little too aggressive in their communication. So, um, being direct and being clear has not really ever been a problem for me. And uh, the possibility of being direct and kind at the same time exists. Absolutely. And I know that of you. Uh, I've been around you enough to know direct and kind coexist within you. Yeah, I was going to just add that, you know, again, Julie, I've known you a long time and you were talking about, you know, having access to the heart, you know, and I, I have known that in you for again, 27 years, um, that you've always had a, a easy access to that heart that, cause it, I mean, you know, the, the, the desire for fairness and justice and all of that is a driver for you. And it really comes, I experience it from you as a place of deep caring, you know, a deep, I mean, you're just moved by things. And so I appreciate that about you. And it, it just reminds us of the complexities, like as you've named people, we can have memes and stereotypes about what eight looks like. Um, and uh, you, you demonstrate so beautifully for us that ability to move forward and to be decisive and also to do that with a lot of heart and a lot of care and compassion. Yeah, I, I used to call myself the John Boehner of city council. Um, for, for those who, for, for your, the younger members of your audience, John Boehner was a former speaker of the house who um, was, who often cried um, uh, and which was just very unusual for a pilot to that level and for a man particularly. Uh, so, you know, there have been several times in the five years that I was on city council that uh, depending, I don't even remember what the issues were, but there were things that were very compelling uh, including this past summer, um, all of, with all the demonstrations and the murder of George Floyd and all of that, where I, you know, I got very emotional. And in fact, my my farewell speech um, for my last city council meeting, I was not actually able to deliver myself. I had to, I had one of my council fellow council members read it because I could not get through it mm. without losing Aww. it. <laughs> um, wow. And. Uh, it's, uh, um, see, I'm about to tear yeah. up right now. So it's, um, yeah, it's, and I think I, I, you know, I work with um, two other women who are eights and, and, and friends with lots of other um, women, particularly women, I think, who are eights. And uh, I don't know of anyone who sort of cries as easily as I do about things. And they're, you know, I have, they, they have expressed to me that they're kind of amazed at that um, because it does get to, you know, it, it, I think the perception is it, it, it shows a real vulnerability. I don't really view it that way 
um, I don't view that that makes me vulnerable or weak or uh, anything like that. It's just, it just is. Another question, and you've predicted <laughs> the topic. What most challenges you, given that you lead with eight? What most challenges you in leadership? And I'm going to ask a very specific question about that and then uh, say what you will. But um, eight is a self-forgetting type. So I'm wondering how self-forgetting has tripped you up in your leadership. So I, I could be totally wrong about this, um, but where I think the self-forgetting has had the most impact is, is, is on me rather than on other people. Um, and, you know, my, um, <laughs> somebody uh, described to me that <clears throat> at one point that vacation for me was just a place where I checked email slightly less often than, uh, than when I work. So, you know, and, and I know this about me, I mean, particularly for the 12 and a half years that I've been in Asheville, you know, I, um, my work has, my work has been my child. Um, and that's both been my work at building Mountain True and my work on city council. And, you know, what, what I need, what I might do for myself, for the most part has come, has come second. Um, well, it's the, the cause. There's such a belief and a passion for the cause that you, you forget you and your own fatigue level and how to care for yourself. Right. One thing that comes up in that question is like, sometimes I hear uh, aides say that not recognizing their limits, that's where sometimes self-forgetting can come in. And I'm just wondering, kind of bumping up against some limits um, or um, yeah, is that, does that resonate with you at all, Julie? I'm not familiar with this concept of limits. Can you talk a little bit more about that? <laughs> uh <-huh>. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I joke about that a little bit. I, um, I, I probably don't do that well again in my personal life. In my professional life, I think I'm much more realistic about, about where the lines are, things that I can and can't accomplish. Although I have <clears throat> also been accused of thinking that I can change things just through the force of will. And my answer to that was, well, yeah, because I can. <laughs> and my force of will and a lot of work that goes into it. But, um, you know, I don't, when I, when I see where things need to go, I don't let go of that easily. Can you think of other aspects of your personality type that trip you up or that are challenging to you? Yes. So... Um, you know, years ago, before I knew anything about the Enneagram, uh, and even before I, I had really done that much self-reflection or, or had that much outside input into my, into my personality, um, you know, I, I just remember coming to understand the first time that apparently I had a dominant character. Um, this was news to me, uh, and when I sort of I was, I was part of a, a, a leadership course um, and, you know, we had done some evaluations and we were in small groups sort of sharing the results of our evaluations. And I said, I said, Hey guys, this says I have a dominant personality. Is that true? I don't think that's true. 
And they, I mean, we, they didn't stop laughing for five minutes. I mean, it was, it was, and I just, you know, I was just, again, it was like the, the description of the eight. It was, this is not me. I, you know, I am this collaborative, warm, embracing person. Um, and I just really had no idea how I come across in a conversation. And that has been the big challenge is to um, not say what I always think in the definitive way that it forms itself in my head. <laughs> and that has tripped me up time and time again because it, people perceive it as, um, you know, particularly when you're in a, uh, when you're in a, within an organization, when you're in a position of authority above somebody, um, you know, you, you say something and you, I don't think that I'm saying it definitively, but I am saying it apparently so definitively that they take it as that's the end of the conversation. In my head, I'm just putting an idea on the table. Uh, and, and it was literally years before I realized that the tone with which I was doing it and the way I was doing it was cutting off conversation instead of inviting conversation. And, and that is still a challenge for me. I will share with you just last night, I read my performance review, my, the, the reviews of the staff of, um, of me for this past year. And this is, this is an issue that one of my staff members raised. It's all anonymous. I don't know who it is, but this very issue is obviously still something that I struggle with, even though I have, I work on it every single day um, and, and have worked very hard over the last, um, you know, probably 10 years or so once it really crystallized to me to soften the edges. These are the things that go through my mind. I have to soften the edges. I have to smile more. I have to, um, I, sh I need to put things in the form of a question instead of saying it definitively. I have to suggest things that are, that I have to suggest my ideas instead of making them as statements. Um, all of these things. And obviously, even though I, I work really hard on it, I, it's still a challenge. <laughs> how, how does it, um, how does it make you feel, Julie, to say, like, I have to put it in form of a question, I have to make it a suggestion? Is, you have a feeling about that? What I need to do now is make my, is, is continue to, to work to make myself as, effect, as an effective leader, as, as effective as I can be. Um, and if putting things in the form of a question or suggesting things rather than stating them will get me to that, then that's what I need to do. Well, you've pointed to two um, of the blind spots of type eight when eights haven't really um, done a dive into the Enneagram or other self-awareness tools, but the blind spots of tone and uh, the impact we have. So there's an addiction in type eight. We want to make an impact. And the ego ideal is I'm strong. I can make it happen. And uh, who, who else are we besides that? Well, and I heard the word, I love the word you use, it was effective, Julie. It's, effective. Sort of, it's, it's, it's like pragmatic in yeah. a sense. It's like, yeah. it's like saying, you know, I could show up this way, you know, full on, but, but if I really want to get what I want, then I'd realize there's some ways I need to shift some of that. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of, I want to be effective. I just need to do that. Um, Julie, what do you think about, like, as you think about uh, when you were younger, and again, Enneagram is relatively new for you. So what, do you, what are some things you might have wished you'd have known 
when you were younger um, in terms of your leadership and thinking about the type eight, the way you understand it now? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, and, and, and some examples. I think the biggest thing is that, you know, I'm not always right. <laughs> I'm just not always <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and things don't have to be the way that I want them to be. Things can unfold in a way that is different from my vision and it's still okay. It may not be as efficient. It may not be an efficiency for so much of my life. Efficiency has been such a driver and, and efficiency is, it's important in some ways, but in many instances, it is not important. It just doesn't matter. And it's more important to, to let other people do things in the way that they need to do them and, uh, and let things unfold in, in the way that other people have orchestrated them to unfold, even if it's not the way that I would do it. And even if I can look at it and say, there is so much a better way to do this. It's not important. And the, the, the example I, I will give you here, there's so many, <laughs> but the one that really sticks in my mind is, it was a, I think we were celebrating someone's birthday uh, at the office one day and, and, you know, someone had set up, you know, cake over here and ice cream over here. And I looked at the situation and people were kind of getting, you know, glommed up at the ice cream because it wasn't, and I, and there was another place that it could be. And I said, well, why don't we move the ice cream over here? And I said it like four times. And finally, the woman who had organized this whole thing, she was like, okay, fine. And she picked up the ice cream and she slammed it down on the table. And, 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 and after the party, my boss, um, who is just the dearest man and one of my mentors um, pulled me into his office and he just said, you know, it doesn't always have to be the way you need it to be. It's okay. This was, you know, this was this woman's party and you needed to just let her do it. Um, and so that has, you know, to, it, and it's always helpful, of course, when it's a mentor who brings this to your attention. Um, and so that lesson has just always stuck with me. And, uh, you know, it's okay to let go. It, it, it's, it's okay to let go. So you're speaking to the focus of attention for type eight, which is we're looking to see what's out of control so that we can put it in the control that we think it needs to be in. And so in the one of the great gifts of the system is, of course, telling us where we place that attention and knowing that we can expand it. And so you've just given us a great example of knowing that placement of attention and now expanding it to see it's really okay. And you're bringing that forward, Julie, reminds me that oftentimes leadership issues for type eight revolve around uh, micromanaging or standing back too far. It's like an all or nothing for this type in leadership. And it takes a while to really navigate that for an eight leader to find that middle ground. What's that been like for you? This, this is just such a great conversation to be having right now, given that I read my my reviews from my staff last night. So as I said, mm -hmm. one of the 
one of the critiques that came through was about how I communicate and how I, you know, in the definitive style of communication can shut people down. So that was, that was one comment. Another comment, and I don't know if it was from the same person or not, but another comment was that I don't hold some of the senior staff accountable enough um, such that, uh, and, and the, so the, the result of that is that lower staff, lower level staff have to manage up and, um, you know, accommodate for the fact that the more senior staff are not, that I'm not holding their feet to the fire to do what they need to do. And so Sandra, this gets to your point exactly, is that I trust my senior staff to do their job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I give them all the tools that they need. I give them all the support that they need. Um, and, and then I expect them to do their job. I, often I will only know if that's not happening if other people come tell me. Um, and, and, and when that happens, I think that I am quick to respond and go to the person who is making the lives of other people on staff a little challenging you know, I will go to them very quickly and say, this is what I'm hearing, we need to fix it, and I need you to do better. We know this about AIDS too, is that while we are very definitive, we are also very open and accepting, we should be <laughs> very open and accepting of feedback. Um, and Sandra, you may remember that in the, in the panel of AIDS that you did with our staff, this was one of the messages that we, we as a group of AIDS sent to our staff, which is, yes, we are strong. Yes, we are definitive, but you can challenge us. It's okay. You know, we are not going to bite your head off. Um, we, we, are, we are open to that. We will we'll probably fight <laughs> for our position, but, but, we, but, but, we're, but we're open. You know, I, I remember once, <laughs> just once, <laughs> Having this really strong opinion and got got irritated at a, something in the grocery store and came out of the car and a friend of mine simply asked a soft, honest question. And it totally changed me. And I saw I did not need to be that way. I was so wrong. And oftentimes it is the moment when eights need, and it was for me, the soft, honest question. Because body types match energy. And if you're going to do that, then more than likely, I'll soften with you. Does that make sense to you, Julie? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I love it when people I work with, and, and particularly people I manage, are willing and able to challenge me. And, and even that, even more than that, are when they're in, like particularly in my world, communications people and development people who know their business better than I ever could, when they just tell me what needs to happen, when they just boss me around. And, and I've, you know, I've said to multiple development directors when, in the hiring process, you, I am inviting you to boss me around on this. And I need to know that you can do that. Um, but, it, you know, re related to that is, you know, the more junior people don't feel empowered to do that. They're, and, and again, sort of the definitive and the strength of an eight makes them very hesitant to, again, kind of give the feedback that 
that we often need. Um, so it's another challenge. Well, I'm aware, Julie, that you bring your eight gifts to our state Senate at a time in our country that is so us and them, such a duality. And the enlightened spiritual perspective of type eight is holy truth or oneness, the non-dual world. What, what will that look like for you? How will you work with that? Yeah. Do you have a vision? I do. Um, I have a vision and I have a, <laughs> I have a deep fear. Um, the, the fear, of course, is that I won't be effective or impactful. And, you know, as we know, that's one of our, that's our core motivation. So <clears throat> I am worried that, that I will get there and um, not be able to affect any change and that that will be really deeply distressing for me. Um, my answer to that is that I will find a way to be effective <laughs> through force of will or, or uh, just through uh, strategic thinking and relationship building. And so I, I have a history in my professional and personal life of building relationships with people who are very different mm -hmm. from me and people that I disagree with on many, many mm -hmm. things. But for whatever reason, we are, we are able to find the, the place of, um, of fellowship <laughs> uh, and friendship um, and trust and honesty. Uh, and that, that has served me well, um, again, both professionally and personally. And I'm, that's what I'm going to take to the North Carolina Senate and my ability to build relationships with people I don't agree with and, and find the places where we can agree and the things that we can move forward on together while you know, setting aside the things that we don't agree on. And you know, this is politics and, and politics is a blood sport. And so it, it may be harder to do that. And of course, what it also takes is the ability of the other person to do mm -hmm. that. Um, and I've been fortunate, I think, that uh, I, have, I have worked with, with professional colleagues who, who are able to do that. I, I hope I can find those in the, in the Senate as well. The word that comes to mind as you spoke was magnanimous. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And ultimately what this gets down to is relationships and seeing people as people rather than seeing people as a party or seeing people as an ideology. Um, and when you do that, you're, you're, able to, uh, you're able to get so much more done. May it be so. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your upcoming work in the Senate, Julia. It uh, feels good to know you'll be there. Thank you. Uh, anything else, Julie, that comes to your mind um, that you might want to share around type eight and leadership? Well, one of the other challenges that we didn't talk about was the the anger. Um, Chris, you mentioned it a little bit, but, you know, and that was, again, one of the things I reacted against in reading about 
eight an eight, eight type eight for the first time because I don't consider myself an angry person. I mean, you've known me for a long time. I would hope you would not consider me an angry person. Um, that said, uh, I definitely have the flashy anger uh, that again comes, and as I've learned more about the Enneagram, that comes primarily out of two places. You know, one the the when I see injustice. Um, then that that's definitely what's going to come. But then also the um, the the feeling the help the feeling of helplessness or 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 victimization of um, and it again it doesn't it doesn't last long. But other people don't know that. <laughs> so again, it can be very impactful on people that are around you um, if they don't know that it you know it rises and then it falls. And then you've moved on um, because so many other people do hang on to anger or just not able to walk away from it so quickly. Uh, and so I'm, that's a, I would say that's probably a new area for me in terms of my growth and development is really trying to control that flashy anger. And I have found it useful to really discern between intensity and anger. So many people interpret intensity as anger and how to soften the edges of intensity so that folks don't mistake that for anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I would say that I, I don't think of somebody who has access to anger, that doesn't mean that person is an angry person, right? It just means for good reasons, as you've named access to anger, which becomes a, a mover right? It moves us. And then sometimes it can be a challenge when, you know, it might alienate or, or put somebody off or impact them in a, in a difficult way, but it's, that doesn't make a person an angry person. It just means they have amazing access to anger. So, right. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a good, that's a good distinction. Um, the, the other thing that I will, I will say is, and Sandra, I've learned this from you is <clears throat> actually, I guess from both of you in the workshop that I took this summer um, or in September, maybe is, um, you know, just trying to have and keep an open heart. Um, that, that has just been enormously helpful um, in, in times of anxiety and, and getting to that, as, as I'm growing to that place of anger is just kind of stopping and remembering the feeling of what having an open heart is like and trying to get to that place. Cause it, it, it just makes so many things possible if you can get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see that you're really touched just in saying I that. <laughs> yeah. 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 An open heart engaging in conversation with an open heart changes everything. As you said, makes so many things possible. It does. Mm. And we eights all know we have such tender hearts, but we forget that we also have strong hearts. And if we remember that our heart is strong, we need not protect ourselves so. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Julie. Yeah. Oh, Julie, it's been a wonderful gift to spend this time with you. Thanks for helping us understand and more deeply that, um, your experience in leadership and how we can learn from that. So thank you. Well, I, I thank you both for introducing me to the Enneagram. It, it has been one of the best tools 
I've ever encountered for understanding myself and finding the places and the ways that I need to grow to be a better leader and a better person. So thank you. You're welcome. So with heartfelt gratitude, I'm Sandra. And I'm Chris. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including the Wake Forest University Program for Leadership and Character for their financial and institutional support, for Sally Ann Morris, who created our theme music, and for Logan Greenhall, who provided website support. And great gratitude to Eric Merle for his quality editing expertise. Special thanks to the Narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders, and certainly great appreciation to all of our guests. For more information about this podcast and how to get a copy of our book that served as a companion for deepening personal and spiritual growth, visit heartoftheenneagram.com. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.